Hi, my name's Siler Thomas, and I'll be performing the Minor Prophet song. I hope you like it. Do you know the Minor Prophets, Minor Prophets, Minor Prophets? Do you know the Minor Prophets? There's 12 books in all. Hosea, Joel, and Sobadiah, and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It was almost as bad as it can possibly get. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, would you like me to, to do another song? Because I can sing the Hebrew alphabet to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy, if you'd, if you'd like. Well, no. I, are you saying there's a chance at all? Is that... I'm... It's an absolute <laughs> categorical never. No. Okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Thank you. Thank you. Hosea, Joel, and Sobadiah, and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, Siler's not around this weekend. He's still returning from his big audition. But when you do see him again, be real nice to him. You know, he's a little hurt at the moment. He's real proud of that. You might ask him to sing the Hebrew alphabet uh, to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. He'd like that. That would, that would be an encouraging thing uh, for Siler. So, be real nice. So it's great to be here with you today, uh, not only here in the Lake Forest Sanctuary, but up in the 01, at Crossroads, at Highland Park, wherever you are, uh, it's a great day to come together. We are uh, nearing the end of this Minor Prophet series, and we're going to take a look at the small book of Obadiah this morning. Um, So my wife and I, uh, we like to watch PBS dramas you know, like the Masterpiece Theater series. That's sort of the, the, our favorite thing to sit and watch. And uh, we, we sometimes binge watch these shows. Now for us, binge watching means two episodes at night after the kids go to bed. So that, that's, our big, that's our big moment. So maybe you can relate to that. So we've been watching a, a series lately uh, that's uh, three series into it. We just completed the third series this past week. And it's the story of a British soldier post-Revolutionary War. So he had left England, fought in the Revolutionary War in America, and then gone back to his hometown in England and found it just to be in ruins. Uh, His father had passed away. The the family business had gone uh, to pot. The land was in ruins. Uh, The woman he loved had married somebody else. Everything was in shambles. And so the the story of this show, this series, is how these things, you know, how he's going to try to piece his life back together. So we watched season one uh, over the course of a, a week or two, and you know we were into the drama, into the story, and into the characters and things like that. And of course, it's hard times, but you're very hopeful that things are going to work out because, you know, main character, great guy, all of these things. And then season two gets going, and things aren't working out. So every time something good happens and you're hopeful, it, it just all falls sideways again, whether it's through his own bad choices or uh, sort of the, the bad characters out to get him. Just one thing after another just keeps frustrating his plans. And then in season three, you think, okay, maybe now is the season where it's going to turn around and we're going to start to see some good things happen for these characters that that we've really come to love. But no, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And, And at first, you know, we're watching this show, we're getting really angry at the bad characters, right? We're angry at the bad guys. Come on. When are they going to get their comeuppance? And then we're angry at the main character. We're like, why do you keep making these ridiculous choices? Like, you know better. Don't do that. Do this. And then we start to get angry at the screenwriter, at the author of the story. They're like, you know what you're doing to us. Like, you're just dragging us along in this story, teasing us with hope, and then you just keep crushing us and frustrating us. And finally, we get to the end of season three, and they're like, all right, that's it. We're done. Like, we can't, we can't watch this anymore. 
We're so sick of this. We, we don't have any hope or reason to keep watching this show. It's just been too long. We've invested too much. We're out. We're done. Season four. Who cares? Now, maybe you've had this experience before where you're sort of dragged into a story and, and you begin to lose hope in where this story is going. And certainly that happens in dramas, in shows, in movies, but it happens in life as well, doesn't it? Sometimes we come to a place where we've been waiting so long for things to turn around. Whatever the, the circumstance or situation is, our, our frustration has mounted and it just seems like we, we can't turn the corner and begin to see a ray of hope or a ray of joy. And, and, and it really weighs in on our faith and it's hard to believe that it's worth pressing forward. And in a very similar way that I just described with this show, we get frustrated with other people in our lives, other forces, and we blame them. And how come you know, these things can't get worked out? And then sometimes we blame ourselves and we think, oh, if I would have only made different choices here or there or done this differently or that. And then sometimes we get frustrated with God, the author of the story. And we say, why are you doing what you're doing? Don't you see that this is not right? Sometimes it's hard to believe in God when the circumstances of our lives are frustrating and are keeping us down. Now I want to do something just to sort of level set the room here. We'll borrow something that, that some of our friends and other church traditions do. I want you to turn to somebody near you and I want you to just confess, sometimes it's hard to believe in God. Go ahead, turn, say that to somebody near you, get it off your chest. Sometimes it's hard to believe in God. Now I, I know, I know that was hard for some of you, because you're very spiritual, you did your Bible reading this morning and you prayed and you said, no, 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 I, 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 I believe in God no matter what. But I want to remind you that nearly every major biblical figure, even the heroes in the Bible, came to a place in their life where it was hard for them to believe in God. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter took actions into their own hands because they had come to a place where it was so hard to believe in God, they just had to act in their own wisdom and self-sufficiency. So I'm going to ask you to do it again with a little more conviction this time, a little, a little more resolve. Sometimes it's hard to believe in God. Say that to your neighbor. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes in this life, we come to a place where it's hard to believe in God. The book of Obadiah was written to the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, at a time when it was very hard for them to believe in God. And I think we can learn something from this word that God gave to the people of Israel through Obadiah to help us, to help us see how we get to this place sometimes where it's hard to believe in God and where to turn when we find ourselves in that place. And so to, to learn this lesson this morning, we're going to read the book of Obadiah. We're going to read the whole book. Now, how many weekends have you read just a whole book of the Bible, even the whole book of the Old Testament in less than five minutes? So it's, you may not have read the Bible at all lately. You, you can't say that anymore. So in just a few moments, we're going to read the book together. So I'm going to invite you to find a Bible, either turn it on your phone or, or maybe there's one around you in, uh, in the auditorium here in the Lake Forest Sanctuary. Uh, they're actually under the pews. You may have been coming here a long time and never knew that. There are Bibles underneath the pew. Um, so find that. We're going to read that together in just a few minutes. I'm going to read the New International Version. So if you have a choice of which version to read along with, that's the one we're going to do. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to give a little backdrop so that we understand 
what is going to come in this book of Obadiah. So the circumstances surrounding this book are, are sort of on the tail end of the story of two twins that were born. And these two twins figure prominently into the overall story of the Bible. And we first meet these two twins, Jacob and Esau, before they were born. And we meet them before they were born because when they were in their mother Rebecca's womb, they, they were, they were, the Bible tells us they were at war with each other, sort of knocking around so violently in their mother's womb. We see this in Genesis chapter 25, that Rebecca cries out to God and says, what is going on in my body? Now, I have never carried a child, never given birth to a child. My wife has. Uh, I've, I've seen the movement of one child in, in the womb just from the outside. You know, late in pregnancy, we can sort of see the elbows and legs and things moving around. And sometimes it's like, wow, there's a lot going on in there. So, but we've never had twins. Can't imagine. Some of you probably have. You ladies have carried twins, and maybe you know something of, of what this is talking about. But I think what happened with Rebecca is something epic. She just cried out to God, and the answer that she received from the Lord was, there are two nations at war within you. So before they were even born, these two twins were in this epic struggle. And then it just played out in their lives and in their history of those who came after them. The climactic moment in the story of Jacob and Esau, you may be familiar with this story, is when Esau, the older brother, had been out hunting. He came back. He was famished, starving to death. Jacob, the younger brother, uh, had made this stew. And Esau says, give me some of your stew. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright and I'll give you some stew. And, and he does. So Esau loses his birthright to his younger brother Jacob uh, out of his you know, sort of hunger this one day. And the blessing, the inheritance, the birthright that should have gone to the older son then went to the younger who was Jacob. Now this was no small transaction. Because their grandfather, Abraham, had received the defining promise of God that is the story of the Bible. It's when God came to Abraham and in response to Abraham's faith said, your descendants will be my people and I will give them a land to dwell in forever and they will live under my loving law and my good rule and my favor. He had made a great promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be God's people in God's place under God's rule forever. And that promise that he had made to Abraham would go via the birthright of his son and their son. So it passed through Isaac to Esau. But because this birthright had been transferred to Jacob, now this promise would go through the line of Jacob. So this was no small transaction. And from the moment Jacob received his father Isaac's blessing and the birthright passed to him, Esau was furious, and he vowed to kill Jacob. And so through most of the Old Testament, we see Esau's descendants constantly harassing Jacob's descendants. So the descendants of Jacob became known as Israel, the nation of Israel. Esau's descendants became known as Edom, the nation of Israel. Edom. And so Edom was constantly in conflict with Israel throughout the Old Testament. And then the the climactic moment in that conflict came when a greater nation, the nation of Babylon in 586 BC, came and conquered Israel. Deported their citizens all over the place, left only a remnant there in the homeland, um, conquered Jerusalem, their capital city, laid waste to it, uh, destroyed property, took spoil, uh, just wrecked the land of Judah and their capital city, Israel. And then Edom, who was living in a neighboring territory, came in after Babylon had ransacked Israel, and they began to 
pillage and loot and, and sort of kick Israel when they were down on the heels of this great defeat at the hands of Babylon. And it was in response to this act of violence toward Israel that God stepped in and said, no more. And he pronounced a final judgment against Edom for their history of antagonism and violence against Israel, which culminated in this ultimate act of stepping in and and looting and, and violently acting against their brother when they should have come to their aid. When, despite their rivalry, Edom should have come against their brother in response to this greater enemy, but in fact they did just the opposite. And so the Lord speaks a word of judgment against Edom, and that's what we find in this short book of Obadiah. So like I said, we're going to read through this. Just a couple of things to help us understand it as we go. Obadiah is the um, speaker, the prophet. He was speaking to uh, the nation in this prophecy. It's sort of like a situation where uh, a United States president, maybe in a State of the Union address, is speaking to uh, United States citizens, but sometimes you'll hear a president address another nation uh, sort of directly, but you know that other nation may or may not be listening. It's for the purpose of encouraging or speaking to the United States, but using this rhetorical device to speak sort of over the heads of the primary audience to this secondary audience. And for about two-thirds of this book, that's what's going on. You'll hear the Lord speaking to Edom, but for the benefit of Israel, to communicate his message to Israel. So that that takes up about two-thirds of the book here. Um, Israel at this time is a broken and jaded people. Remember, I said this prophecy came at a time when it was very hard for them to believe in God. They believed God had abandoned his promise to them, uh, the great promise that came to Abraham of being his people in his place under his rule seemed to have been utterly wiped out through this defeat against Babylon uh, and then sort of the, the added defeat against Edom. And so they were in a place of great questioning. Uh, you see statements in the, the book of Ezekiel, which was another prophet who was speaking around this same time, uh, where they said, has the Lord abandoned us? Does the Lord even see us anymore? Our faith in God isn't working because of what we see around us. These were the questions that were in the mind of Israel at the time that this prophecy was spoken. So we'll see what the Lord had to say to his people at this time when it was very, very hard to believe in God. So beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. This is the Lord speaking to Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you, would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Teman, which is another name for Edom, will be terrified 
and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. It's a reference to drinking the cup of God's judgment. Verse 17, but on Mount Zion, which is a spiritual title for the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin and possess Gilead. This company of Israel who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So this small book, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament by far, has an amazingly powerful message and occupies an important role in the story of the Bible. And a lot of themes that carry through the Old and the New Testament sort of are woven together in these 21 short verses, shorter than many chapters of other books. And there are a lot of things that we could zoom in and focus on, but we don't have time to do that today. I want to highlight one theme that emerges in this book. Because I think it's a key for us when we are in those times like Israel was, where it's hard to believe in God, to help us see how we got there and help us find a way out. And it's through this lens of God's character and God's ways. We've seen a lot about Israel's situation and Edom's situation, but we learn a lot about God as well through this story. Specifically, a truth about God that shows up in various places in Scripture, and that is this. God humbles the proud, but lifts up the humble. We see pride woven in a lot of places in this prophecy that we just read, and it's, it's a statement about God's character, that he humbles the proud and lifts up the humble. We see this in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 34, he says, He mocks the proud, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And so this theme, this truth about God, shows up in the way that he talks about Edom. 
in the opening section, he talks about the pride in Edom's heart. You see that in verse 3. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And, and for about half the book, he's focusing on this element of Edom's pride that was the pride of their heart, their attitude of pride. And God is saying, that pride has deceived you. And in, in the verses that follow, verse 3, verses 4 through 9, he talks about three dimensions of their prideful attitudes. The first was where they lived. They lived up in a mountainous region, up high in the mountains, sort of a rocky area. They had sort of built these rock fortresses into the mountains. And because that's where they lived, they had this pride that said, who could conquer us here? No one could reach us up here in these rock fortresses. But God, who humbles the proud, says, even if you flew in the sky like an eagle, or even if you made your home in space among the stars, I would still find you there and bring you down. God humbles the proud. And then we see this aspect of their hidden treasures. So in these rock fortresses, they had accumulated wealth and possessions and security there. And God speaks to that dimension of their prideful attitudes. And he says, do you know, if, if, if a thief came, he would steal some and leave other. If, if grape pickers came to sort of loot your vineyards, they would take some grapes and then leave others. But when I come to humble you, I will ransack everything. There'll be nothing left of your hidden treasures. God humbles the proud. And then he talks about Edom's allies, their so-called allies or friends. And he says, you may think you're invincible because you have this great nation of Babylon. You have these so-called allies at your side. But those allies are going to turn against you. They'll lay a trap for you when you don't detect it, and they will bring you down. God humbles the proud, and proud attitudes are deceptive. Now, Edom was not the only proud nation in this story. In fact, it was a, res- it was a result of Israel's pride that got them into this position of judgment to begin with. The, the backstory, the greater narrative on Babylon coming and conquering Israel is that God actually raised up this pagan nation to discipline his people, to humble Israel for their own pride. And I think when you and I read this, we have to admit that that pride tends to show up in us as well. Edom doesn't just represent the pride of the nations. Edom represents the pride of the heart. And when we're humble enough to hear it, it speaks to our condition as well, doesn't it? And in some very similar ways. Edom had strongholds of where they lived that made them feel invincible. And sometimes you and I do as well, don't we? We feel invincible or untouchable or free from harm because of the neighborhood we live in. Because of the locks on our doors and the alarms on our homes and and the places that we choose to go. We sure rely on our hidden treasures, don't we? Our our bank accounts and investments and things that, that we build up securities so that we feel safe. And our friends, our family, our colleagues, those that we run with and, and call ours can help us feel secure and invincible. And in all of these ways, some of them quite subtle, it's an attitude of pride that says, I don't need anyone else. I don't need God because I rely on these things for my security, for my strength, 
for who I am. But those prideful attitudes, just like they deceived Edom, deceive you and me as well. I wonder what it is for you. It might be a stronghold or a hidden treasure or an ally, or it may be something else. It may be education or reputation or something that you rely on more than you do on God's loving provision for you. We put our faith in these things. And here are a couple of things I'm learning by experience um, about how these things work. And, And the first is that I think the more we rely on things we can see in this life, the harder it is for us to believe in things that we can't. We just get conditioned that way, right? And we just live our lives. And we might say spiritual things. We might come to church on Sunday and and know the things to say. But when it comes down to it, what we're really relying on are things that we can see. And the more we're conditioned that way, the harder it is to believe in things that we can't. The second thing I'm, I'm learning these days is that proud attitudes tend to take root when things are going reasonably well. And then when those harder times come, those frustration comes, we tend not to run to God, which we are invited to do, but instead we become jaded and we turn against him because we've equated those good things in our lives with God's favor. So when those good things start to wobble and the wheels start to come off a little bit, we begin to question God and say, how can he love me if these things are happening in my life? And when that continues to go on and on and on, we become so frustrated, we become so jaded, and we turn against God because we're relying on those things that we can see around us. Pride is deceptive, but God will humble the proud. Just a few weeks ago uh, at, our, at our weekly men's Bible study uh, with the fraternity, uh, we were talking about uh, this passage in Romans 1 uh, where verse 18 talks about people suppressing the truth about God in their unrighteousness. And in a way like I had never seen before, I saw myself in that passage And it made me think about unrighteous attitudes of my heart, of of frustration and impatience, and and just when things aren't going my way, how I just wrestle with that internally, and how that suppresses the truth about God's love for me. When I get all wrapped up in the things that I want to see that I'm not experiencing. And I began to see, and it was humbling to see, just how much I suppress the truth about God's love for me when I'm so focused on what I don't have or what I'm not experiencing. And I think that happens. And then when those times come that, that we are most in need of returning to God, we find it so hard to believe in him. Well, the story about Edom goes on, and it wasn't just the prideful attitude of their heart, but it gave rise to some violent, prideful, destructive actions. Verse 10 says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. And then there's this litany of accusations because of what Edom had done against Israel in their time of defeat. Said Edom stood by while strangers and foreigners invaded and looted them. Rather than behaving like a brother, they behaved like an enemy. 
Edom looked, Edom looked down on Israel. They rejoiced and even boasted in their day of trouble. Edom invited Jerusalem, invaded Jerusalem alongside Babylon. They looked down on them. They stole their property. They stalked and attacked the refugees and turned them over to Babylon so that they would be captured. It was this, it was this in a way, Edom stepping in and wanting to play God in vengeance against their brother. Babylon invading Israel was God's business. Edom jumping in and taking vengeance on their brother was something they had no business doing. And God judged Edom for it. God humbled the proud. And then it goes on to talk about not just Edom, but but all nations will be humbled by God. And then the concluding portion of of the prophecy is that At the end, at the day of the Lord, which spells judgment for the nations and blessing for his people, God would restore Israel. Having humbled Israel because of their pride, he would restore the land to them. And these closing verses talk about all these regions that will be populated and restored to Israel. Ultimately, at the end, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Because God lifts up the humble. Not only does he humble the proud, In their day of humbling, God will lift up the humble. So I really just want to say one thing to us as we reflect on this story and and what God has done through the nation of Israel to the nation of Edom and what he's saying to you and me about our pride. And I think it's that we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. James 4.10 invites us to do this. It says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And it's the opposite of lifting ourselves up before the Lord and receiving his humbling. So if you're in that place where it's very hard to believe in God, the word of Obadiah is he will keep his promises. The kingdom will be the Lord's, despite what we see around us. His promises, his love has not failed. So don't harden your heart in resistance against God if you're in that place where it's hard to believe in him. Humble yourself before the Lord, believing that the kingdom will be his. If you're not in that place, if you're in a season of relative normalcy, I'll say, Don't be deceived by the things that we tend to put our pride in. Humble yourself before the Lord now and allow him to lift you up, believing that the kingdom is his. And then for all of us who live on this side of the New Testament, the king who rules this kingdom is Jesus Christ. The way to receive the promises that God gave to Abraham of being God's child, of receiving the promise of an eternity with him, of a relationship of favor with him, comes through following Jesus. That's how we come into the kingdom of the king. So the invitation for us, humble ourselves before the Lord, turn to Jesus and follow him. Confess your sins to him in humility so that he might lift you up and bring you into his great and good promises, which we're going to celebrate in just a moment when we take the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, let me lead us in prayer. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your plans and your purposes, your wisdom, your love. We confess sometimes in this earth it's hard to believe in what you're doing. So thank you for this reminder that no matter what we see, your kingdom will be the one that stands. And I pray that you would soften our hearts to that today. Help us to be humble before you, trusting in you, and lead us in the way of eternal life that comes only through you. In Jesus' name, amen.